This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Chris Stroop. Chris was a guest back on episode 15 of the show, and since that time, he's become well-known for his essays on religion dispatches, as well as his threads on Twitter about the global religious right, particularly in in American and Russian politics, as well as evangelical experiences more broadly. He's also a fellow administrator of the Exvangelical Facebook group, which began as a group for Patreon patrons of this show, but has since been open to anyone seeking community and support. Now, the last time Chris and I spoke was just two days before the 2016 election, and we have quite a bit of catching up to do. At one point, I tried to summarize the litany of scandals since that night, and I'm so flummoxed I just basically stammer for a little while. We also talk about the trending hashtag, Empty the Pews, which Chris started last month and continues to drive conversation about the complicit nature of the evangelical church and its support of the Trump administration, and how churchgoers can protest by refusing to stay. Even such a summary really doesn't quite do it justice, and I recommend you search Empty the Pews on Twitter for some very powerful stories and read them. We also talk about the Exvangelical Facebook group and its growth over the past month as people continue to join and find comfort in one another's experiences. As a quick aside, um, we recorded this the Sunday of Labor Day weekend, and I'm releasing it a week after that, so... Um, when we mentioned a couple, we mentioned a number of around 700 people that were in the group, and now there are well over 800, so the group continues to grow, and it's extremely exciting. Um, and if you're looking for a place to talk about thin, the sorts of things we talk about on this show, I highly recommend that you uh, seek it out, and I'll put the link right here in the show notes. Please come join us and, um, and become a part of that conversation. Okay, aside done. (laughs) Let me finish up this intro here. Chris also blogs over at chrisstroop.com and has a Patreon page over at patreon.com slash cstroop. Please go support his work. It's very important. And if you want to support the work of this show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which helps people find the show. And finally... You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain, and the show is at ExvangelicalPod on Twitter. I also do an ephemeral podcast on Anchor at anchor.fm slash ExvangelicalPod. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week Dr. Chris Stroop. Chris uh, appeared on episode 15 of the show, and he is also a frequent collaborator of mine now. Um, he is a scholar and writer and holds his PhD in Russian history from Stanford. He teaches currently at the, I'm sorry, excuse me. He is the visiting instructor in the honors college at the university of South Florida. And he writes extensively at, uh, religion dispatches and his own website, chrisdroop.com about a number of ex evangelical things. Um, welcome back to the show, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, Lake. It's great to be back on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. I'm glad we were able to to make it make it work this week. Um, you've since we first 
talked, uh, the landscape has sort of changed a lot, <laughs> um, both just uh, nationally as well as uh, for evangelicals, for for you uh, yourself and and your uh, the response to your writing and everything. It's just there's been a ton of development since last November because we actually spoke the first time the day before the election is when I published that, <laughs> that, that episode. <laughs> I had forgotten that that was the exact date that, that we talked. Yeah. Uh, that, that, of course, was the day before uh, some major, uh, to my mind, devastating changes in American society. And for many evangelicals, of course, literally re-traumatized. Many of us have been re-traumatized by the results yeah. of that election. Um, and since that time... The Twitter community has grown quite a bit. We opened up the evangelical community on Facebook. I think that was a great decision that that you made uh, to make that group available not only to um, former guests and supporters of the show, but to anybody who is looking for kind of a safe space to discuss evangelical issues now. Mm-hmm. What are we up to? Seven hundred members or something? Yeah, I think it's grown. I think it's grown ten x in the last thirty days. Last time I checked, it's very active. So, I mean, once yeah. we opened it up, a lot of people wanted in yeah uh, and it's, i mean it's growing all the time and it still seems to be a very healthy community i i know a lot of people who are just saying that wow that group means a lot to me and i know it means a lot to me yeah yeah me too i'm i am absolutely uh floored by the response i'm i'm very pleased with with how people with how people have found it to be encouraging and and um and yeah it's it's just it's just been a wonderful development over the last month or so since that's happened. Mm-hmm. I just pulled it up. 712 is what we're up to. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think yesterday we were, uh, uh, one of, one of the, uh, other admins, uh, Jesse, she mentioned, <laughs> I think on maybe Thursday or Friday that we're at, uh, Six six six. It would have so, been kind of amusing to keep it there. I hope, keep... I hope somebody took a screenshot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So so yeah, let's let's go back to sort of recapping everything that's really happened since then. You, um, we talked, um, uh, we we talked just before the election, and then and then from the election day, I mean that, and to your point, it trauma it re-traumatized a lot of people. It became the it became the tipping point and the I've had enough point for a lot of people. Oh yeah, um, we're seeing that a yeah, lot. Yeah, we're seeing that a lot within the group where. <sighs> Where um, people couldn't cope with the fact that that um, that there was eighty one percent of uh, evangelical support for Donald Trump, um, and then for you, you actually uh, you started you received a, a lot of very well deserved attention for your work on Twitter. I mean, um, you your your audience there has has grown, and and you you've developed a really wonderful like uh, ability to to make these great uh threads as well as hashtags um, thanks like yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's 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 great to to go and uh log into twitter every day just because i know that there's going to be something interesting to talk about <laughs> and, <laughs> and like and uh-huh. a lot of times you're 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 really helping develop and, and steer that conversation um, Thanks. I have, you know, since the beginning of the academic year, I've been teaching a lot more, so I haven't been doing as many threads. But with the new hashtag, Empty the Pews, a lot of things have been happening. And I will get back to doing some threads. I did, I did one the other day, kind of, I guess you could call it one of my 
sort of prophetic voice threads where I yell at people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I ex- let's say I exhort people. There you go. <laughs> uh, to love and good deeds or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that whole thread that started with, um, you know, to everyone who says that, who thinks that empty the pews is too radical. I have some things to say to you. Right. Um, but, you know, I sometimes, <laughs> I sometimes do the more uh, analytical threads. So I really started to blow up um, thanks to support from Sarah Kensier, who mm-hmm. took an interest in, in my threads about ties between Russia and American conservatives, and particularly the, particularly the Christian right. Mm-hmm. So she shared me, uh, recommended me a couple of times, shared some of my threads, and we've continued to work together some since then. Um, so I really started to blow up around that time, thanks to her. And then also the evangelical stuff has grown by leaps and bounds. And I didn't realize I would, be, I would come to be somebody who's at the center of these conversations. I mean, and there are so many interesting experiments going on with evangelical conversations, but I think, um, that the Facebook group is, has become a great center where a lot of people come together. I mean, you know, there's, there's various podcasts mm-hmm. and they're, they're important. Everybody has their favorites, lots of good, uh, conversations going on. And, um, I've tried to, to foster that on my website as well, which also went up after the election and it took me a while to think of a name for it. So yeah, as you said, it's at chrisdroop.com, but I named the blog there, not your mission field as, um, you know, sort of a, a way to reclaim our, our own stories. Um, right. Yeah. Moral autonomy. I don't, I do not like proselytizing. <laughs> as you yeah. Know, I yeah. didn't like it when I had to do it, when I had to hand out tracks to people on the street right. in high school. And I don't like it when someone tries to do it to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had, um, we went to a pretty fundamentalist church for several years and they, occasionally wanted everyone to try to do street evangelism on, um, our, our church met in a, like a community center on a very diverse street, like with a lot of, um, like a lot of Indian and, uh, Hindu and, um, uh, Islamic, like multiple faiths were represented just on that street. Um, and mm-hmm. the people that were there and uh, I, I, I made as many excuses as I could. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because, because yeah, it's, it's awful. <laughs> like it's just, it's, it's, it's forced. And, um, I don't know. You, some people would say some people are gifted for it, but it still seems, <laughs> it still seems weird to, to, you know, um, it's weird when Greenpeace does it, you know, it's right. like, uh, so how weird is it when, when someone goes up and tries to convince you about their religion? Like I have um, made an art form out of avoiding people with clipboards <laughs> and tracks. <laughs> I, yeah. you know, I have a kind of allergy to literature being handed to me on the street. I probably miss a lot of great things, like, you know, really good deals on pizza or something. Yeah. Because I just, I just avoid those people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually let's, let's talk about this a little bit more because I think this is a really important facet of, um, both of our, uh, approaches to how we administer and establish this sort of community, um, both, uh, within the private group on Facebook, um, because we're both admins in the group and we have a couple of other admins and moderators as well. Um, but one of the main, one of the very main tenants is do not proselytize. Like, uh, and that is very, it's balanced very somewhat delicately, but it's balanced, I think, um, mm-hmm. with this 
with this ability to allow people to be somewhere on the spectrum of belief and not that not let that be the thing that mm-hmm. that defines and this is not a place for um what I've what I've called a couple of times like rhetorical dominance. You know, you're not right. here to determine to dominate a conversation and make someone believe what you think, whether that's believing in God or believing in no God. Um but I think that like Yeah, I think you put that very well. That's that's well put. <laughs> we want to avoid rhetorical dominance. And you know, that's that's a, a language game, if you will, with apologies to Wittgenstein that a lot of people like to play, particularly a lot of white men like to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the the I, I think the the thing that is encouraging to me, and the and I know that that we we are at different places, like just the two of us, just because mm-hmm. I because we've developed, uh, you know, we we've begun we've we know each other much better now than we did when we first spoke, um, mm-hmm. and like I'm, yeah, like I still go to church, but like, uh, I mean. I my my base assumption is that um all of any faith is conjecture <laughs> like so um so for me it's I'm not dogmatic about things um even though mm-hmm. like I still um am sort of exploring uh, I'm exploring these things because they're beneficial to me at this moment in my life um but but like that doesn't to me that doesn't negate your experience Sure, and, and I don't want to negate yours. Right, right, um, right. And I, I, I never feel that way. Like when we talk, and I, uh, and that's that's a good thing. <laughs> like that's that's <laughs> the best possible outcome for me. And I think it is interesting. Um, you you were just recently on um, Steve Austin's podcast, I believe it's the the Ask Steve Austin podcast, um, and uh, and you mentioned in that interview that people from our background having evangelical backgrounds, wherever they are now, they're, they're sensitive to proselytizing because they've uh-huh. <laughs> been, they may have been forced to, or they may have been force fed something that they didn't agree with. Um, yeah. A lot of people I think are, I mean, you see some people too, who they kind of want to share where they are now, or they haven't fully shaken that part of uh, evangelical mentality the evangelical ethos Mm -hmm. and that can go both ways uh i mean you you have atheists who want to convince you that you have a slave mentality if you still believe in god and this is terrible and you should liberate yourself and you know you have other people who are who will say things like i feel sorry for those um ex-evangelicals who were driven out of christianity altogether you know to which i say don't feel sorry for me i don't feel (laughs) sorry for myself how about not patronizing me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah 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 you know i just some of us want to go on in religion that's okay some of us don't that's okay and so what we've been saying in that group is um let's support each other in in this you know at least try to affirm each other and i think mostly that has worked remarkably well because mostly we do seem to stick to we're just talking about our common experiences right. and we're giving each other support when we're going through shitty things that right. have to do with um you know coming from where we come from, Jesus land, USA, as I, <laughs> as I called it back on November 6th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Cause there is so much that, that we, we can, we, we have a amazing depth and breadth of like uh, common cultural shorthand and even, even just sort of like emotional states that you can, you can relate to if someone has, mm-hmm. has this background. Um, 
it is very like um i i i heard I, I think it was part of this is a random anecdote that just came to mind but it was i heard an anecdote on npr it was related to a book about like it was something about the happiness index or whatever and any any and related on a country level any country that had direct interaction with Russia was dramatically less happy. Like, <laughs> uh, and sometimes in my mind, I think of that little anecdote and think, uh, well, evangelicalism is similar. Like it has oh, that sort of, that like deep imprint on you. <laughs> like, we will force you to be free. Have you seen, uh, have you seen my old thread on the similarities between America and Russia? Uh, no, I, I no, I, at least I, I can't recall it at the right now. Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I do often say that I, I think there are a lot of things, a lot of ways in which the United States and Russia are very similar. Mm-hmm. Part of it has to do with the imperial history of both countries, the Cold mm-hmm. War great power rivalry um, being one example. But, you know, there's what I like to call imperial provincialism, both in America and in Russia. I hear people sometimes complaining when they hear people speaking a foreign language on the street, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, both in America and in Russia, I've heard people say, oh, our country is so big and so great, I don't really feel a need to go anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You have yeah. this aggressive, aggressive patriotism, right. uh, this defensive nationalism, um, this reflexive sense that you, your country has to be great, which is just doesn't even mean anything. It's stupid. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not little g great. I mean, that's fine. Like we all uh, love our countries, right? And we, um, it's, it's, there's a healthy form of patriotism, but this sense that like I have to be from the greatest country in the world, or my country has to be so superior to so many other countries in order for me to feel a sense of well-being, mm-hmm. that is unhealthy. That is unhealthy. Saying right. I love the country is not unhealthy. I want to be clear, but you know to uh, at the expense of other countries like we have to make it a zero-sum game and we have to be the greatest that's something that russia and americans share that's unhealthy and it comes along with an embrace of alternative facts and conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and it's really funny to see how the um the conspiracy theories have come together like they have the same conspiracy theories in some (laughs) cases i mean they're both in both countries there are a whole lot of conspiracies about george soros oh really I didn't. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I knew that from the right wing, like George Soros, uh, here in the United States. I didn't know it was present in Russia. Now, did you did you hear those conspiracies back in the '90s or the '80s? Because I didn't, but I've talked to um, you know Tori Glass. I talked to her or uh, Tori Douglas, and um, she told me that she did hear those those conspiracy theories earlier in the United States. I never had, but I heard them in in Russia. Because uh, do you know who? I mean, do you know much about George Soros? Um, I mean, honestly, I I don't know very much other than he is a somewhat he, he is vaguely liberal and extremely rich. You know, like. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he he he's more than that. He's also an intellectual. He's yeah. a Hungarian Jewish man who um, you know spent some time living behind the Iron Curtain and then made it to the United States and. Um, he used his wealth to found the Open Society Foundations, and he developed this whole theory of open societies and closed societies. Mm-hmm. Um, open societies being those that uh, have democratic politics, 
um, relatively liberal in terms of their markets, though, of course, you can have healthy protections and social safety nets. I mean, mm -hmm. European societies that have much more robust so social safety nets than the United States are still open societies. And right. mm -hmm. you know, I think we should have that social safety net. And I right. think George Soros would agree. Um, but, you know, uh, versus authoritarian societies that try to control information that don't have democratic politics. And yes, George Soros has attempted to, uh, to foster democratization, uh, to foster human rights and the kinds of things that go along with healthy, open societies. Mm -hmm. So that makes him this, you know, um, this devilish bad guy to both the Christian right and the Russian government. <laughs> yeah. Which is interesting using, uh, just, Back to what you just mentioned earlier, as far as like that zero sum mentality. I mean that 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 is completely anathema to an open society, and or or plural open societies, uh, like sure. because and um, uh, yeah, you know, there's been always been a large subsection of Americans who are par they do have paranoid personalities, which goes along with authoritarian politics, and if they can't realize them in politics at the macro level, they do it in their communities. Mm -hmm. And I am, of course, talking about conservative Christians. I'm talking about evangelicals, I'm talking about Mormons, I'm talking about radical Catholics, rad-trad Catholics. Uh, these are the kinds of Americans that you would associate with the Council for National Policy, with the John Birch Society, or whether or not they're members, you know, with sharing in those views. I mean, some of them go as far as to believe in the Illuminati and that sort of thing. Uh, these are people who don't want freedom. They want an escape from freedom. Their mm -hmm. vision of what society should be is utopian. It's a, it's a utopian theocracy. And during the Cold War, I think a lot of people didn't realize that because um, they were they were very opposed. They were some of the most vigorously uh, active people who were opposed to the Soviet Union. Right. And I think everyone knew there were some crazies who some anti-communist crazies. Right. Think about uh, William F. Buckley Jr. essentially kicking the uh, John Birch Society out of the conservative movement. Well, the John Birch Society is actually very much still around, and now it's kind of at the center of where our conservative movement is, and that those are the people who are in power in this government. Mm -hmm. And that includes um, a, a lot of prominent figures from the Christian right. They were always authoritarian. They didn't actually want freedom. They, they simply could not abide godless authoritarianism. Their problem was communism. It wasn't authoritarianism. And during the Cold War, they lionized uh, Russian Christians who were also very conservative. I and mean, we can take a case in point from the late Cold War. We can talk about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, mm -hmm. who, of course, did do something very heroic and very important in exposing uh, the, the incredible abuses that occurred in the Soviet gulag uh, penal colony system. Mm -hmm. uh, but Solzhenitsyn, was, he made no secret of it that he was extremely hardline paranoid conservative Christian. And it's not an accident that once um, the Soviet Union fell apart, some time passed, the post-Soviet uh, government became closer and closer to the church. Solzhenitsyn, who had been expelled from the Soviet Union, and he did not have Soviet citizenship, and after a collapse, he did not have Russian citizenship, he received Russian citizenship back. He was a big fan of Putin, and he died in Putinist Russia, a loyal Putinist. Hmm. Uh, he was someone who was always lionized by our Christian right. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I remember he was. I remember he was one of the. Um, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, oh um, no, that's fine. He he was uh, he was one of the the figures in a book that uh, that I remember pretty clearly from. I I read pretty much anything Philip Yancey wrote in high school. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think Soul's, Soul Survivor was the name of this book that, in which he uh, he talks about the people that he he admires a lot. Um, and honestly, it's sort of weird thinking back um, before going into the Soul Solzhenitsyn was was one of the figures along with Dostoevsky of these people that that Yancey um, uh, appreciated essentially. Mm-hmm, but the mm-hmm. the odd thing. Um, about the way he even sort of framed that book, and this was back in the late '90s, was th- these were basically people that um, allowed him to <laughs> like uh, resolve the cognitive dissonance of things he. I think he saw that were wrong with evangelicalism, <laughs> like like thinking. About, like thinking. I mean, it, <laughs> when you think about the other people that were in the book, um, there was like Henri Nouwen, um, Henri Nouwen, uh, Frederick Buchner. Some other people that are that would probably be considered more theologically liberal and even socially liberal than mm-hmm. than um, but then there's the presence of people like Solzhenitsyn, um, mm-hmm. uh, which I like that book and a, and a couple of other similar ones that that painted him in, in a much more beneficial light than, mm-hmm. <laughs> than this than this context because I didn't know anything about his later life other than um, but you know he he was absolutely uh, lionized as you said because that's in me young young uh, young Blake working in a Christian bookstore uh, as his part time <laughs> job reading about I don't think Sol- you're that old yet but <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, I'm not old. I'm not old, but uh but I'm just uh, my own uh looking back at me in high school working uh <laughs> working mm. at a Christian bookstore reading about Solzhenitsyn and that none of that was, you know, uh not, a lot of that hadn't happened yet, but also that that sort of undercurrent would not have been even recognized. Sure. Uh, one of the big puzzle pieces that's missing, I think, in our understanding of the religious aspects of, mm-hmm. of the Cold War and the aftermath, and which helps to explain why so many people on the American right today are uh, just admire Vladimir Putin so much, has to do with the presence of Russian Christians in the Cold War on our side. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mean, on more more or less on on the side of the West, but the Christian West. They weren't really on the side of the open West, you know. Right. And by Christian yeah. West, I mean Christian dumb, more or less. I mean, obviously, there's not really a Christendom anymore, but you know, right. the hardline Christians, right. the ones yeah. who thought that you had to basically have some kind of religious idea uh, for society to function. That liberalism, because it lacks content, could never be stable. Yeah, and the the that the very absence of the idea of God would lead to. Uh, just complete and utter chaos, which would ultimately then be replaced by totalitarianism. Right, <laughs> because yeah. you have to have something. To, and this is about Francis Schaeffer. I mean, tons of people said this, but Dostoevsky said it long before Francis Schaeffer said it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that once uh, you you have uh, the chaos that will come from this libertinism, because if people don't believe in God, right, we're just going to devolve into our sort of animal state and follow our animal drives. Uh, you'll end up with totalitarianism. Dostoevsky said it first. He said mm. it. In uh, his novel *Demons*, or sometimes translated *The Possessed* or *Devils*. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That it's a very paranoid idea. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Which it it I mean, within the context of the history of ideas, it was probably it was a response to the the Enlightenment and all those sorts of developments. But yes, it is a kind of, yeah. it is a kind of neo romanticism. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And the, I mean, I'm I'm reading into that mind. <laughs> so. I, this is actually I, I this is where I wanted to go next. So I'm gonna uh, this segue here. Uh, I took a, a course um, from a professor that, um, in retrospect, was very 
uh, Christian Reconstructionist as far as um, he wanted us to develop a biblical Christian worldview. Um, mm-hmm. That was the main thing in which he trumpeted across all of his history courses. And he taught primarily American history up to the Civil War uh, mm-hmm. and also um, and also uh, Western intellectual and social history. Um, Let me guess. He thinks uh, Stonewall Jackson was one of the greatest Christians ever and maybe he, some of the other Confederate generals. Um, he did not. He did not have a high opinion of even Lincoln. Um, he thought uh, he had us read an essay in which um, it was posited that um, that Lincoln orchestrated uh, and starved out Fort Sumter, um, and uh, also also floated the idea that that um, that slave owners should have compensated should have been compensated for chattel slavery. Um, mm-hmm. so that's indicative of the sort of, uh, sort of stuff that, uh, happened, but, um, one of the key texts, I don't know if you, uh, come across this one is the, the light and the glory, um, which is, uh, really in, in a lot of ways, like a apologetic for theocracy, essentially. Looking at, I um I haven't read that. Who's the author of that? Uh, I don't remember. It's two authors. I'll I'll send you the link mm-hmm. afterwards, and I could. <laughs> I, yeah, I'll send you the link afterwards. Um, I don't even okay. know if I want to put it in the show notes, <laughs> but <laughs> but um but anyways, uh, it's essentially uh, an an apologetic for the theoc- for theocracy, and also really idealizes the the Puritan society. Uh, mm. amongst other early american societies uh, um i just googled it i found it so you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to find it <laughs> okay all right yeah yeah so um so it's a uh, so that was one of the one of the texts um that that was assigned as well as a number of different things by francis schaefer um in developing uh, which which you t- again you uh, mentioning again your your discussion with uh, steve austin um you, you you talked about this idea of Christian reconstructionism and that this desire in which to pursue theocracy as uh, as the ideal form of government and the the second best and maybe more realistic is uh, control of government by Christian leaders. Um, sure, I mean they would call it theonomy because uh, I mean thoroughgoing Christian reconstructionists would say that theocracy already exists. Uh, everything is under the authority of God, and they're always reducing things to false dichotomies, as you know. So, you know, everything is either uh, in obedience to God or in rebellion against God, mm-hmm. right? So right. theocracy is an unrealized ideal, which nevertheless does uh, exist, and working towards over their multi-generation plan to to achieve a godly society and pave the way for the millennium since they, they are post-millennialists and Calvinists. I mean, all those things are important to um, the consistent, thoroughgoing ideology of Christian Reconstructionism. Of mm. course, a lot of people who are influenced by Christian Reconstructionism don't accept the whole package, right? So there are a lot of people who are, uh, say, premillennial dispensationalists who also accept that every everything should be in conformity to the biblical worldview, right. which is a big false dichotomy. It's a huge con, right? There's this one biblical worldview and there's everything else which is in rebellion against God, which allows yeah. people like uh, Franklin Graham has recently said that communism and secularism are basically the same thing. And a lot of his Russian friends also say that. They, they go to the West and say, we can help you survive the new totalitarianism. I'm quoting a guy uh, named Alexei Komov, 
Um, we can help you oppose the new totalitarianism of um, political correctness and sexual revolution because we survived communism. They hmm. basically conflate communism with secularism. And it goes back to that, that, uh, that same paranoid, totally false idea that a society that doesn't have God at its center is ultimately going to end up totalitarian. Right. That, <laughs> to me, the, the thing about discussing these things is it, you know, it veers so far back so quickly um, and so sort of seamlessly between political and social and theological <laughs> implications and beliefs. Um, and it's surprising to me, like learning, learning from you and learning from um, the sorts of uh, details that, that you've shared through your threads and your essays about these different things within uh, the similarities between uh, Russian conservatism, Russian Putinism, um, the Russian Orthodox Church, and the Christian right. Um, it's really shocking to me that, that to learn a, of those similarities and how, um, how they have aligned in order to really enact and, and enable a lot of very destructive conservative um, policy. Like, and not just in America and Russia. Right. I mean, they are two key nodes of a global push to um, pursue anti-LGBT policies, anti-abortion, anti-woman policies, anywhere and everywhere possible to pursue patriarchal right-wing populism. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, both Americans and Russians are deeply involved in networks with European far-rightists, uh, with certain um, organizations and people in Africa, particularly Uganda, um, other parts of the world as well. You know, Uganda is where... Uh, they criminalized homosexuality, and uh, the original bill included the death penalty. And uh, people like not only Scott Lively, but the fake moderate, you know, everyone thinks he's just this nice old guy. Rick Warren was over there preaching rabid homophobia in a way that he generally shies away from being caught saying these things publicly in America. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he also has blood on his hands in Uganda as far as that goes. Hmm. What, he was uh, very encouraging of the, the efforts to pass um, these extreme bills, not even just criminalizing homosexuality, but making it a capital offense. Right. And, and then you, he says, oh, I didn't want that to happen. But, you know, he goes on comparing homosexuality to bestiality, pedophilia, dogs returning to their vomit and all the rest. So, yeah, Rick, no, Rick, you don't you don't get to escape culpability. Right. Yeah. And you that was actually one of the, one of the first sort of topics that you addressed um, when you started writing about uh, ex-evangelical um, experience as well as the religious right in a more public public forum. It was in regards to this issue of, um, of LGBT affirmation or LGBT discrimination. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I, there, there's really no reason to sugarcoat that or try to use uh, someone else's language to, to cover up like it's discrimination and and really just <sighs> intolerance. Yeah. Um, These so, are sick people who need to feel superior to someone, mm -hmm. and the LGBT community is easy to scapegoat for them, so they do. Mm -hmm. And it's time to to own that, you yeah. know. And um, I mean, they, they they try to simply erase its existence, and this whole national statement that just came out yeah. is mm -hmm. uh, is more of the same. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, I, growing up, um, often felt uncomfortable with um, masculinity. I didn't really identify a whole lot with masculinity um, or maleness, particularly. I uh, didn't like to do things that it was just kind of like understood that the boys in our family did, like play basketball and golf. Like, of course, you don't have to do that to be a man, right? Like, this is, right. I mean, yeah. that's totally arbitrary. But nevertheless, like, all the things that all the men in our family did, like, watch golf on TV, I was just like, I really want no part of that. That's not interesting <laughs> to me at all. And, um, and, you know, I did all the high school plays, and um, I liked show tunes. And, I mean, all these, these are just stereotypes, too, of course. But nevertheless, you know... Um, I would sometimes, when when it would come up in conversations that I didn't fit masculine stereotypes or whatever, I would just sort of quit. But well, but you know, I'm comfortable in my masculinity. But all that ever meant was I like girls, which is true. <laughs> I mean, like I, I um, you know, it, I'm trying to lead up to say that it took me until I was in my 30s to recognize that I am, I am queer. I'm not entirely straight. I'm queer mm-hmm. in somewhat complicated ways, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, Yes, I always was attracted to women, and I still have been more often than I've been attracted to men, but I have been attracted to men, too. Uh, And there are things going on with my um, gender that I'm sort of trying to figure out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I think that's why I gravitated to those issues. But there are also just such prominent issues right now because the Christian right has decided this is going to be a tilt to die on. And if we ever take American democracy back, because they have stolen disproportionate power, let's just put that out there. This is a coup. This election was not free and fair um, in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, uh, even if it's according to the rules, you know, and I, I, I think a lot of things happened that are not really according to the rule or shouldn't be. I mean, voter suppression, certainly. The Russian influence campaign, Whatever effect it had, it had an effect uh, that uh, the Christian right and the Trumpists and generally our Republicans are perfectly happy to go along with and benefit from. Mm -hmm. Um, The the clearly targeted voter suppression and the Electoral College, none of it, the Electoral College is not breaking the rules, but it's not fair. And the gerrymandering. We have a a, uh, radical patriarchal minority that has stolen disproportionate power in this country. Most of the country is extremely angry with them and with with evangelicals in particular, white evangelicals, because they remain Trump's strongest support. And mm-hmm. if we don't slide into a kind of authoritarianism that we can't get get out of anytime soon, if we somehow recover to the point where America is sort of a functioning democracy, mm-hmm. I, um, I, I think, I hope these people are going to find themselves in the political wilderness. It's hard to imagine what the mechanisms for that would be because of our really sort of messed up two-party system in which they control one of the two major parties. Yeah. But the Christian right in particular is not popular and it's going to find itself increasingly less so. Mm-hmm. And um, I look forward to a time when they are politically utterly irrelevant. Mm-hmm. What, what I hope you... for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Their languages just serve to confuse them. Their confusion somehow makes them more sure They build fortunes, poisoning their offspring And 
hand out prizes when someone packed insecure. As do I, and I mean, I, I remember um, one of one of the sort of <laughs> things that that um, was a was a came as a shock in my own sort of political development and everything was when I I told my parents that I hope an evangelical is never president again, like, um, and his, uh, and that I think that came as a surprise to them as well, um, hmm. but I I completely agree. I mean, they uh, they are they have sought to undermine a number like on a number of different levels and a number of different strategies, all manner of democratic norms. Um, mm-hmm. and because they've never, they've never cared about democracy. They care about power and control and being mm-hmm. superior. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, uh, it's, it's been evident through, through their push for, for education in which they, they espouse beliefs that are essentially, uh, one of your hashtags actually was, uh, I believe, Christian alternative facts. Was that Christian alternative facts? Uh, uh, Christian, well, alt, Christian alt facts. Christian yeah. alt facts. Yes. So Christian mm-hmm. alt facts was one of your hashtags in which it demonstrated. I mean, for a lot of one of one of the things that came out of that was people sharing about their experience within Abeka and uh, Bob Jones mm-hmm. and other mm-hmm. different homeschool curricula that um, that talked about that idolized people like Stonewall Jackson, as you mentioned. Or, mm-hmm. or have, mm-hmm. have a young Earth creationist um, a denial of geology, <laughs> like right. Um, all that different... one did um, did trend once, and it was really I think it was quite interesting, and mm-hmm. it was eye opening for a lot of people. I mean, I didn't see anything too many things there that were surprising. Sometimes yeah. someone does have something that they learned that you didn't learn. And you're like, wow, right? You know, but most of the, most of them we probably all heard them. Right. Um, but it did get people's attention. Yeah. And um, it also got the attention of some alt-right trolls who started trying to come back with Muslim alt facts, uh, oh, which, really? total, which totally <laughs> failed to take off. Oh, my yeah, gosh. But they were, they were so, um, they were so butthurt that <laughs> this, <laughs> the Christian alt facts was trending, and I was just laughing at them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean... The interesting, the the interesting thing ab- uh, about all of this, uh, I mean, about our political climate, about what has the the contribution, the extremely negative contribution that that the Christian right has had, and the and evangelicals both of um, on regardless of where they where they fall in level of severity, whether they're extremely conservative or more moderate. Um, had been complicit in in the most recent several months since <laughs> since we last talked, uh, mm-hmm. in which we've we've had all all manner of uh, all all manner of scandal. It's so it's hard. I mean, it, it, it that would that would be its own like not a, not on not its own show like its own podcast like talking about <laughs> talking about all the different things that like betsy devos i mean we could talk about betsy devos forever mm-hmm. you know all mm-hmm. these um uh, um the transgender ban all these different things um that are just really an, an assault on on our norms and on the different uh, levels of progress that we've that have been achieved over the last several decades um and mm-hmm. it, to your point it is it is happening at a clip that is very significant and um it, and it really relates and feels like a coup like a social cultural coup mm-hmm. um 
I mean, it, it, in, cer- in a certain in a certain sense, it is. Uh, I think that the, the voter suppression is obviously not democratic. You combine the voter suppre- suppression with the willingness to benefit from a Russian influence campaign, and you know, I'd say it's a coup. In any case, um, they've been using a number of tactics to take far more power than what they represent in the actual population of mm. the United States. Yeah, it was, that's, I mean, that was also true of the South before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Right. They had essentially st- fixed the system and stolen disproportionate power. Mm-hmm. So let's I, I, let's talk a little bit about like the these culture war sort of things that have um, that have continued to be an issue. And it, what it seen what seems like the on, the only people it's really an issue for is white evangelicals. Like a lot of times it, they they frame things. Um, successfully in a number of like, especially when they're talking to their own audience, they mm-hmm. frame, th- frame things very successfully that it's an us against them mentality. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, that, uh, that we're in an increasingly corrupt world. Um, and that we are the bastions of light, uh, that we are the forces for good amongst. They love to tell themselves that. It's so funny and twisted. I mean, uh, you know, the way that supporting authoritarianism and the taking of other people's rights away, they conflate it in their minds with fighting Nazis. They all imagine that they are somehow back in time fighting Hitler, like they would have been Corrie Ten Boom or something, mm-hmm. you know, or Dietrich von Hofer. Yeah. The real, the real uh, Dietrich von Hofer, of course, has nothing to do with the fictional character created by Eric Metaxas of that same name. But, you know, they all imagine that they would be back there somehow fighting the bad guys. They are the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I, I don't have, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to stick up for, <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, it's especially over the last few, the last few weeks. Um, I mean, it, the, the example uh, to, to couch it in, in a religious language. And I think both of us have done that on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, their witness, so to speak is weaker and weaker. <laughs> <laughs> you know what kind of things that you, you know? tell me that my witness would be weakened for when I was on, um, at the end of my first mission trip of two short term evangelical mission trips that I took to Russia in 1999, which is how I got into learning about Russia in the first place, mm-hmm. uh, staying in a hotel near red square and the Red Hot Chili Peppers were playing a concert on Red Square. And obviously, we couldn't have gotten into the concert, but you could hear the music. And like the the head missionary from this organization posted in Moscow, the organization was uh, OMS International. At, that used to stand for Oriental Missionary Society. It since it was only initials at the time because even they had understood that you can't really say Oriental <laughs> in that context anymore. Yeah. And they have now rebranded as One Mission Society. Anyway, their guy in Moscow was like. You cannot go down to Red Square and listen to that concert. That will ruin your witness. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no support, supporting uh, you know, a pussy grabbing authoritarian doesn't ruin your witness at all. No, not at all. Yeah, uh, that in particular. But listening to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Their their album name is Blood Sugar Sex Magic. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure magic is spelled with a K, which means it's even extra evil. <laughs> 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 so this, 
this term we're we're talking a lot about this administration because there are there there is so much relevance there there's so many evangelicals like in power so many evangelicals that that supported this um supported and enabled this administration um that it it is a a key issue and a key um catalyst for a number of people to mm. really begin to examine what evangelicalism stands for and what it will tolerate and what it will not tolerate um and one way in which one way in which you frame this was through a thread on Twitter um called empty the pews and mm-hmm. through that um actually actually I'd actually like you to just sort of explain what your what your thought was behind um, starting this this hashtag, it was part of a thread. Um, just yeah, if you could contextualize yeah, that for the, us. Um, the thread didn't start with empty the pews. The thread started with a question of what can we do to respond to evangelical complicity in the racist terrorism that happened at Charlotte Charlottesville. These mm-hmm. Nazis carrying torches, uh, shouting blood and soil, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the president that they support and they have not abandoned and they did not de- abandon and they refused to criticize for this. In fact, people like Jerry Falwell tried to spin it into he did oppose white supremacy. We're all opposed to white supremacy. What are you all complaining about? Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, no, that is not what our so-called president did. Um, after he was basically forced to say that, he again sort of doubled down on the whataboutism and said, in fact, there are some very fine people among those Nazis, you know, and went back to the it's both sides are at fault thing and then uh, tweeted about how terrible it is that we're taking down these beautiful Confederate statues. So, no, uh, Jerry Falwell, you and the president are indeed complicit in white supremacy. I would I go so far as to say you are both white supremacists mm-hmm. and I don't care how you try to wriggle out of it. You fucking weasel, Jerry Falwell Jr. I'm talking to you. You are a weasel and a deceiver. Um, so in any case, how do we respond to this when evangelicals simply deflect all criticism? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thought came to me that, uh, since we knew you and I and other people knew because we were seeing this in the group that a lot of people said that the Trump election was their last straw. They had to leave. I figured there are more people in the, in the pews or the theater seats or the folding chairs or whatever mm-hmm. who are wavering, who are not comfortable with this, but are not speaking out because let's face it, when you're a doubting evangelical and that's the only community, you know, you don't tell people, you don't no. speak out, you keep quiet, you go along to get along and sometimes you feel bad about it, but usually you manage to suppress your doubts back down. But, you know, I was trying to say, look, if you're out there, you are supporting evil and uh, it's time to take a stand. Mm-hmm. Maybe actually grow some guts for once and take a real moral stand instead of being the cowards. And I'm speaking to all of you now, white evangelical Trump supporters. You are fucking cowards. All right. You're afraid. And um uh, you don't respond to your fear in a healthy way by trying to face it and work through it. Instead, you project, you deflect, you engage in, in whataboutism, um, and it's transparent to everyone except for you. You are deathly afraid, and that is why you are immature. Uh, you know, you're unable to grow up, and you ought to grow up. So anyone out there who's thinking about actually growing up, um, empty the pews as a hashtag was designed to call on them to do it and to show them that it's possible by asking people to share their own stories of what pushed them over the edge and why they abandoned conservative churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was a very powerful response to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
it started to trend over several days, and then it got picked up and mentioned um, by John Pavlovitz on his blog. Uh, Rachel Held Evans said she was in solidarity with it. I've spoken with Catherine Woodywis at Sojourners about it, um, and I think she's going to publish something on it there. Um, Bill Lindsay talked about it on his blog. We saw not only um, ex-evangelicals um, talking about it, but also some people who came out of um, rad-trad Catholicism, some ex-Mormons, even a few um, ex-ultra-Orthodox Jews chiming mm -hmm. in on this. And um, it, it continues to be a powerful expression of protest against the mobilization of conservative religion for uh, authoritarian ends and opposition to human rights and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been I've been really overwhelmed by the response. And interestingly, spontaneously and independently of me, uh, when Hurricane Harvey hit and Houston was being flooded, and everyone started criticizing Joel Osteen for not immediately saying, "Please, everyone, if you can, come to Lakewood Church and we'll take care of you." Everyone started tweeting the hashtag empty the pews at Joel Osteen. It was, <laughs> it was kind of amazing. Wow. <laughs> and um, then when the Nashville statement um, came out, mm -hmm. you know, I, um, I I said, well, why don't we do this again? I called on people to tweet empty the pews at the signers of that statement. People like fake moderate Russell Moore and John Piper and all the rest of them. Mm -hmm. um, and they did. A lot of people did. Yeah. Yeah. And it, the, the thing about this hashtag is, uh, it, it involves a lot of heart, a lot of heart, just a lot of heartfelt like feelings and deep personal experiences. Um, mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that, um, that is part of the deflection that you mentioned that can happen when someone, when someone that is an ex-evangelical talks to someone that's still evangelical, still religious or, or what have you, um, a lot of times they're just sort of written off as, you know, they backslid or they were not, you know, if it's, if it's a Calvinist person and well, that limited atonement thing, the L just doesn't apply to you, you know, like, <laughs> like, like, that. I actually used to tie myself up in knots with anxiety over that. Oh yeah. Thinking, wondering if I actually just was reprobate, you know? Yeah. And now I'm like, fuck that shit. Fuck <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is no ideology more inherently abusive than Calvinism. Right. Full and, stop. There, yeah. there are good Calvinists, but I don't understand why they exist because they shouldn't. Their ideology is not good. Their ideology is frankly evil. Right. And I mean, it had a deep impact on, on even the, the Puritan society that, that we still sort of deal with now. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, that we, a, a number of us are the, you know, the, the ancestors of, of that. Uh, and, and yeah, absolutely. Calvinism in particular is, is really insidious. And I, um, when I, growing up in like the Wesleyan traditions, uh, I would just, I honestly like thanked God that I didn't have to deal with that shit. Like, <laughs> like, 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 sure. I, I had other things to work through, but, but not, um, but yeah, but not that, that is, that is an advantage of yeah. the Holy Scriptures everything that comes out of yeah. Methodism. The, well, the, the other thing is, I mean, you have to be as perfect as possible, which is kind of hard to strive for. Uh, that's when exactly inducing too. That's fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, but, um, but, uh, to my uh, to my earlier point that the the heartfelt sort of responses that that people contributed to this hashtag I know you actually mentioned that that you had pulled out a few that you thought we that would be good to highlight 
Um, I highlighted a few on my on my blog, and I mm. think um, they they are very powerful. I also know that this has trended enough that it has it has gotten the attention of evangelicals and people on the Christian right. You know, people know this is this is out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So and, and that's because everyone came together around it. I couldn't do that myself, but so many people found this empty the pews message uh, powerful that they started using it, and it's be, it's become so big that it can't be ignored. Right. Um, so yeah, um, let's see. Here's one from uh, someone whose uh, Twitter name is April Persisting. I left when evangelicals made an idol out of Trump, claiming he was God-ordained to lead. I refused to be complicit. Empty the pews. Um, one that I found uh, especially moving and heartbreaking, um, someone whose Twitter name is Ms. Cat, uh, tweeted, The trauma of the church accepting his sexual immorality was worse than my sexual assault. I'm in mourning. Empty the pews. Mm, uh, yeah, incredibly powerful. Some people tweeting that th- their church not men- mentioning Charlottesville Sunday after that happened was the reason they were leaving their church. Well, at least one person I saw like that. Mm. Um, so yeah, a lot of a lot. I saw a lot of clergy uh, from different traditions, including more conservative ones, saying that they were reading these tweets and calling on people just to listen and pay attention, and saying that the church is going to have to do better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that that's positive. Of course, we also saw the the backlash, the attempt by right wing Christians to take it over and turn it around. And so there are a lot of tweets like that out there. Um, yeah, I think I saw fill the pews a few times, things like that. People there's fill there's fill the pews, but then they would also tweet things like you know. Um, if your pastor thinks the scriptures should change with the culture or change with the times, empty the pews. You know, there's uh, a lot. Of, there's a lot of yeah. stuff like that out there. But um, that means we got their attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I think it, I want, and it just is a very visceral sort of uh, way to highlight the way in which this culture that <laughs> that we both come from um, is has just been really damaging for a lot of people, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and how. And the response, the response also um, indicates that people, some people are ready to listen, but then some people are still re- just completely ready to deflect. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Speaking mm-hmm. of which, guess what I'm seeing on Twitter just right now? Because I pulled up uh, the latest Empty the Pews tweets. And mm-hmm. so there's a Washington Post headline um, and it's, it's Albert Moeller. And um, it says, perspective, I signed the Nashville statement. It's an expression of love for same-sex attracted people. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. someone quote tweeted that and said, Dr. Albert Muller Jr. makes a truly pathetic attempt to camouflage his hate, a common tactic among evangelicals, empty the pews. I'm liking and retweeting that one right now in real time. <laughs> in real time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and just to contextualize what the Nashville statement is, I'm sure that a number of um, most of this audience probably knows the the context there, but the Nashville statement was a um, statement by a number of evangelical pastors um, and leaders or what have you that, for whatever reason, in the midst of Hurricane Harvey, decided to make a proclamation about um, about the godly design um uh, if you've seen that slash s sarcasm thing in my voice there 
you know, the godly design of uh, for both uh, marriage between a man and a woman, as well as uh, gender. Uh, and then also, interestingly, if you are an, an LGBTQ affirming Christian of any sort, then you are not a Christian. Um, so that was interesting across the board. Uh, and both the timing as well as all the different statements were really complete and utter. Uh, they were par for the course. I mean, they, they were certainly par for the course as far as traditional evangelical theology. Um, but the manner in which they did it, the timing in which they did it, and also, oddly enough, for a group so in love with the Bible, um, they didn't mention a single Bible verse in their entire, <laughs> their entire <laughs> argument. <laughs> Not their you know, their, timing, I, Yeah, the timing. They, they, they said that it was already... Uh, set, but you know, really, you couldn't you couldn't yeah. change it while the country was dealing with the national disaster. Yeah, and then uh, interestingly, the the Nashville statement and all of that, they are trying to place it within the tradition of the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon, and the ones in which uh, actually were formational in um, d- establishing Christian orthodoxy for hundreds of years. That's what they're trying to claim. Um, that's that's what they're trying to do with this statement, um, and the the response from uh, from through empty the pews and others was very was swift and damning. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So empty, the, empty the pews. I think it's got a lot of potential left. I um, you know I had no idea it was going to take off like that when it just came to me in the middle of that thread when I was suggesting mm-hmm. that people leave their churches in protest. Yeah. Uh, I just typed hashtag empty the pews and um, it really grew up into something like a grassroots movement. Um, and that's not something that I could do myself. It's mm-hmm. it's all of us that have been rallying around this slogan now. It's become a powerful thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So if you if you don't mind, what I'd, I'd like to have just give you an opportunity to sort of explain and uh, again, why why you think it's um it's an imperative for someone to leave a place like that, that is, that is contributing to this sort of culture that, that we're, that we've Mm -hmm. been lambasting pretty much our entire conversation. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I did kind of leave that part out. So of course uh, one thing that evangelicals, not only them, uh, but evangelicals certainly are afraid of is declining, is the possibility of declining numbers, the possibility of uh, losing the youth. These are perennial topics. Mm -hmm. The Southern Baptist Convention has been losing numbers, not at a very rapid clip, but it is losing numbers. And the only reason it's not losing numbers at a more rapid clip is they're they're being made up by uh, immigrants and converts, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to basically put them on notice that um, they are irrelevant to most Americans, and they will become increasingly irrelevant. And I thought if anyone... Uh, who had qualms now could take some inspiration from the stories of people who already have left to find the courage to to leave. And I do know it's hard. In fairness, I do know it's very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, that that would send a powerful message. And so that's the way that I framed it. Um, if they feel some sense that uh, people are going to start leaving these churches, um, they they may not. The leaders may not back down, but. Um, 
they'll get this powerful message that um, they're losing. They will still lose. Love wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I, we're not going to disagree about this. So I don't know. <laughs> I, <I'm, laughs> I, I, I don't really have like a, a, a segue where I'm going to give an alternate point. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would definitely emphasize, um, that to your point, it is not easy. Like, and to your point earlier about if this is your only community, then the, the ramifications are not minimal. Like they're not, they're not easy to, to take sometimes it's, it's hard to say this is something that um, matters so much to me that I'm willing to lose my community over it. Um, and that is like a brave thing, but um, it's, Really, it is a, a season in which we all have to be brave, and we, um, because because there are things that are on the line that really matter, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and right. These How far are they really willing to go? Mm -hmm. uh, and anyway, when I I mean when I called them cowards earlier in a fit of emotion, I mean I'm not going to take it back, but I am going to say that. I do understand that when you are socialized in this community from the moment you are born and you're either homeschooled or sent to Christian school and your entire social world is Christian institutions, right wing Christian institutions, evangelical institutions, mm -hmm. leaving is incredibly scary because that's your entire social support network. And you know, because you get this message in myriad implicit and explicit ways that most people will uh, not support you. If mm -hmm. you if you criticize anything about it or if you leave, so a lot of people don't know how to live any other way. A lot of people are not sure what they can do with degrees from uh, Christian colleges of dubious standing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that most people who do have a an undergraduate degree from Wheaton or even Liberty or any number of uh, schools are still going to be fine. Uh, in terms of finding employment. But in some places, those degrees might carry a stigma. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of people couldn't go to other colleges because their parents said, you're going to a Christian college or we're not going to provide any aid for your education. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's a controlling and abusive culture through and through. Uh, it's designed to make things hard for you to leave. It's not designed to be easy. I went to a state school. And um, my parents were supportive of that decision. They mm -hmm. went to state school themselves. And um, they got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ there, recently rebranded as crew, still as authoritarian as ever. Um, hmm. So, you know, um, a lot of people don't. Um, I, I, had, I started to do some deconstruction in those college years at a state school. I understand a lot of people also lose their faith at these Christian colleges, though, but then they still don't know how to get out of the world, or if they don't lose their faith entirely, um, they don't quite, they don't quite know how to, how to be, how to fit into evangelical subculture. Yeah, that was certainly my experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, that, that was certainly my experience at a Christian college. I, I started studying Greek and everything, you know, fell apart. Like I didn't even know I believed in inerrancy. I, it was apparently just like some sort of underlying assumption that I was making. And then once, once academia, and just uh, just a undergraduate level course of a couple of years of learning Greek and having a very diligent and intelligent professor was enough to rattle me 
and also there was a number of contributions from this whole Christian Reconstructionist guy and uh, the lead up to the Iraq War, all these mm-hmm. things. You know, there was a perfect storm for me per- personally. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, that's definitely true. Like you, uh, oftentimes there are people that that um, that they don't they don't know how to how to how to transition out of that community and to your yeah there is no easy way it's not made easy um and i one one thing i i know that's come up in a number of different commute uh conversations in our in our facebook group is some it it affects the way you relate to people on a very basic level like a lot of uh evangelicalism sort of conditions you also to develop extremely deep intimate sort of (laughs) relationships very quickly Um, Mm -hmm. and then when that doesn't happen in another context then you sort of doubt those experiences preemptively yeah like (laughs) i mean it's 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 also true that people who go through abuse uh abusive situations of various kinds Mm -hmm. uh, often have trouble forming yeah. Deep relationships. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, evangelicalism has a boundaries issue. Mm-hmm. It has consent issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, the issues are that those are not concepts. <laughs> they don't know how to, they don't have any boundaries. Right. Everyone's yeah. in everyone's business. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just assumed it's written off as like church is church, you know, church people like <laughs> church drama, you know, that's like, I mean, I'm sure that, that, there's no drama like church drama. I'm sure people have <laughs> had heard some version of like riff of that phrase, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, the, the reason, a lot of times the reasons why conversations, I, I do feel like our conversation is swayed from, from different aspects of, of spheres. Like there's the political sphere, the social sphere, um, like all these different spheres that we've, uh, and also the explicitly religious sphere that we've weaved in and out of. Um, I, I think the reason why, why that has sort of occurred is because, um, evangelicalism is just that comprehensive, um, in that it touches on all of those different, um, things, political, social, personal experiences. Yeah. Um, it's a, to- it's a totalizing ideology. Mm-hmm. And so is it, and uh, the thing that I the thing that I appreciate about appreciate about your work and and everything is that your 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 discussion of these things is also very comprehensive. I mean, you 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 talk about these things on a personal level as well as how they um, have direct, have significant impact upon our society and the the globe. Like, because it's not it's not just a United States phenomenon. I mean, we, like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're primarily preoccupied with with this experience here um because there's a lot to dive into there but it's not it's it's a global movement it's certainly not sure i guess you could say that my approach is auto-ethnographic it's not exactly autobiographical it contains elements of autobiography Mm -hmm. and it's something that i fell into naturally more or less and i think that this is because when you don't when you know that you're different and you haven't figured out entirely how and why you're different and mm-hmm. you're still not sure this is a good thing. Nevertheless, you learn to live in your head a lot and you learn to observe social patterns mm-hmm. and you learn to just kind of step back and uh, place everything that's going on around you in a broader context and think about it abstractly. And you, you read and um, you, you try to see 
what all the big social patterns are. You're basically doing ethnography. Mm. Um, hmm. If you become morbidly obsessed with uh, the Christian right because it's your past, as I have, <laughs> you know, then you you want to get that bigger context and bigger picture and see how it intersects with your own experience. Yeah. And that's essentially what is sometimes referred to as autoethnography. Hmm. And it can be powerful because you're you're taking these uh, strands from the social sciences and the humanities, you know, and so you are you are painting a picture of broad patterns that's data-based. At the same time, you're showing the personal side and what it means to you personally, and that powerfully resonates with people. Hmm. I've never heard that phrase before. That's really that or that term, autoethnography. That's that's very compelling <laughs> to me. <laughs> it's something that uh, so I'm teaching this course called Acquisition of Knowledge in the Honors College at the University of South Florida. Mm-hmm. It has been around for a long time, but it's recently been revamped. And across all the sections, there are certain common topics, themes, and assignments. Even while within that framework, each professor who teaches it also makes it their own. Mm. And so one of the projects that our students have to do in this is to do an autoethnography where they'll take things that they learned from various studios, hands-on learning experiences that they have through the Mm -hmm. course. Uh, So they'll take the assignments they did for each of those, put them in a portfolio, and from that try to draw some some big conclusions through through which uh, the, the elements of theory, the different approaches to learning, that they got will intersect with their uh, self-understanding and intellectual growth through the course. So they have to write an autoethnographic paper. Hmm. And so it's, it's been on my mind. <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds like a really great, <laughs> a really great uh, assignment. That sounds like one. And uh, were I a student, I would be excited for that. <laughs> Cause that's, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't come up with it. So the person, <laughs> <laughs> the person who redesigned the whole program is mm-hmm. Dr. Benjamin Young. Um, and he's directing it. Uh, we've got a whole lot of people teaching it, but his, um, redesign was meant to, uh, create a kind of common with differences from in different sections, but nevertheless, a kind of common, uh, introduction to the honors college in which students are invited to, to ask the question of what it means to be a citizen scholar what it means to be studying in the honors college mm-hmm. uh, and to kind of be inducted into the honors college ethos. Cool. Very cool. Of inter- where we value interdisciplinary inquiry, mm-hmm. self-directed research, um, exploring our values and putting that into contact with our academic research and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So yeah, thanks. That I said again, I didn't redesign the course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I designed my own um, you know, I picked the the readings for the one that I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. But we we have this common framework. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's gonna be a, a a positive experience. I think it's gonna be a big improvement from what the course used to be. Yeah. And I I do think uh uh what what you said earlier as far as the um as far as it being the, the auto ethnography being an extension of really your, your experiences, uh, and how you, um, 
how you're able to, if you realize to do a callback to our first episode together, um, when you, you said you're weird everywhere, like when you realize you're weird, yeah, (laughs) yeah. When you, when you realize you're weird everywhere, you sort of develop a level of detachment and and, uh, awareness of your situation as you're in your place within a situation. Um, and they wonder and a vagabond (laughs) in the earth and I guess I always will be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, the, the way the positive way in which you frame that in other contexts um, on Twitter and elsewhere is that um, for ex evangelicals, for people that have exited fundamentalism or something else, uh, or however you, whichever term is appropriate for your situation, um, you also can essentially enable, uh, utilize that and <laughs> turn it into a sort of superpower. Yeah, what. it can become it can become a superpower. Yeah. Which I, which I think is is true for a lot of people from this uh, from the ex evangelical community, and I think it's be, becoming uh, apparent in the way uh, people have shared in the Facebook group. Um, yeah, is that yeah. people are very very cognizant of their own um, their own situation as well as the different social um, realities that that they're a part of. Um, mm-hmm. and it's really, um, pretty incredible that, that, yeah. um, that exiting something like fundamentalism to, um, to a different type of life, um, enables something like that is very, and, very, and I think very the only reason that a lot more of us haven't, uh, realized that or done much necessarily done much with it. I mean, not to, um, a lot has been done already. So not to say that it's only starting now. But, you know, for people who, who haven't explored how this might be a superpower for them, I think it's because uh, we have felt so isolated. And that's a very common thread that we see as well. You know, that I thought I was mm-hmm. the only one who did this. There's, there's great empowerment in coming together and realizing that we're not alone. Yeah. Um, even yeah. that thing that I wrote about recently um, for um, Cindy Brandt's blog, mm-hmm. you know, um, Unfundamentalist Parenting, where I talked about how um, the anxiety that I had that was associated with evangelicalism was so bad in parts of my childhood, I couldn't decide which pair of socks to put on on a given day. Because what if a certain pair of socks might somehow lead me to into a conversation where I could witness to someone and they would get saved, you know? Mm-hmm. So I would stand, yeah. I don't know how long, maybe 10 minutes or I don't know, more, less, maybe different on different days, but just staring at my socks, not knowing which pair it was God's will for me to wear that yeah. day. And a couple of people on Twitter said, I did that too. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I yeah. was like, you know, not yeah. only are, are these other experiences so common, but even the socks, even the right. socks, even the I'm socks. Not the, I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that's a very, that's a very, very powerful thing because I mean, that that's really one of the key motivators for me in doing the show and doing the group and working with you and, uh, you know, us helping promote one another in, in any different mm-hmm. ways and just even encouraging one another and mm-hmm. being friends. Like it means a lot. Like, yeah, yeah. And it now means that we're a coming lot. together. Now that we're coming together to have these discussions, both in private to support us or semi-private in our Facebook group, you know, and mm-hmm. among ourselves in private to support each other, but also in public, I think we're going to become a, a powerful force in American society. We are at the very beginning of making our voices heard and, and getting the wider American society to understand that generation culture wars, if you will, it has something to say. 
and I think there's, I also think there's incredible value in that. And, and even, even as, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think because we can speak to sort of both experiences and that we understand a conservative place <laughs> as well as what it means. If, if you just want to use political language to come from a conservative environment and move to a different type of environment, um, mm-hmm. and being mm-hmm. able to, being able to have that detached perspective, but that sort of detached perspective that allows you to analyze things, but also to, um, to subsequently make a, make a decision, which is sometimes because of the way we've been formed, it's a moral decision. <laughs> like we have moral convictions about things. Um, right. A lot to, of us, I think, internalize values that were taught in evangelicalism in, in certain ways, uh, and then we're surprised to see what appears to be hypocrisy. And then we try to push back and fight back from within on the basis of the language that we were taught and the values that we were taught. And then you fail and then you leave because then, you can't, yeah. because they don't listen. Right. But they yeah. will not. They'll put, they, they, they won't, they may not change, but they hear yeah. us. They yeah. hear us. And we are not going away. Right. And we are exposing them to the rest of America. Yeah. Which now understands that they're a threat to democracy and human rights. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly powerful and powerful societally and power empowering like individually. And I, I'm really mm-hmm. thankful that, that, that you're doing the, the work that you're doing and that, um, and that, that you're helping people and really explore that. Um, because, because I mean, it's not something you, it's not something you would have, you have an obligation to do. It's something that you're doing because you know it's important work and because it matters to you. And that's evident in the way that you comport yourself in the way in which uh, you fight for things. No, seriously. Uh, I mean, I'm, and so, so I, I'm thankful that, that for your presence uh, and for your ability uh, in, in being honest and being critical and also being vulnerable because I, uh, I mean, your piece with for Cindy Brandt's blog was very, very vulnerable, um, to, to discuss things in the, in the context in which you did in the very personal revealing way that you did. That's something that, um, takes a lot of bravery. Uh, so I commend you for it. <laughs> Thanks, Blake. I also, you know, very appreciative of what you do, the conversations that, that you've had um, this idea for this podcast. It's it's really cathartic to a lot of people to hear other people's stories. Mm. Um, it's it's very powerful, and you know, and what you're doing on Twitter and in the group, um, it it means a lot to people. Uh, between all of us together, we're doing something that is really big and and meaningful. Mm. And the part that I play in it, it really it feels like a calling, and I don't actually don't shy away from using that kind of language. Yeah. I might not be affiliated with any church at this point. I also don't call myself an atheist, but I don't really believe in a micromanaging God, I think. Yeah. We might be connected to some sort of spiritual reality or bigger than the sum of our parts. So I for people who know anything about Kant and post Kantianism, I call myself which is not most people <laughs> I call myself <laughs> a um and that's not a dig at them either. But yeah, I call myself a, an agnostic with Kantian leanings or certain mm-hmm. Kantian leanings. Um, you know, yeah. there might there might be some bigger truth out there that we're connected to. And I just sure. I just think that if we try to define it through dogma, um, that that to yeah. me, I'm just I'm just very wary of possible steps toward 
authoritarianism. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's 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 where I am. But at the same time, I don't shy away from using religious language right. to express the the kinds of values that I have and that I somehow got out of our evangelical upbringing in some cases. And so yeah. I'll talk about redemption. I'll talk about repentance. I'll talk about exhortations and a prophetic moral voice. And um, yeah. I think that it's a big part of my calling to uh, help facilitate ex-evangelical conversations, um, both so that we can heal as, as individuals and in community. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, so that we can say something to America that needs to be said and maybe help us uh, get America back to, and, and maybe even the Republican Party back to a healthier place at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and I, I think you're doing a great job with that. <laughs> like, like you're, you, you are, you're doing good work in, in all of those different ways. Cause I, I feel very similarly. I feel similarly about, I take this very seriously in a vocational sort of way as well. Um, I, and I'm very glad that, that you have your perspective and you are, you know, utilizing your experience for, <laughs> For a very, for a very good and laudable cause, which is, I mean, yeah, for, regardless of, regardless of what you might like the, the dogma thing, I mean, to put my cards on the table, like basically I, I'm more in like the Tillich camp of God as the ground of being. And that's about as mm-hmm. far as, that's about as far as I can go, um, mm-hmm. with like any level of certainty. And then I, you know, I attend, uh, church, but I'm not going to make any sort of universal claims for anything like pretty much ever again, probably like other than this idea that I'm floating as far as like God is the ground of being, uh, and sort of life itself. I, I can kind of get on board with that, but much else. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, but, I maybe kind of, I maybe kind of could, but I just, I don't want the church part of it right now. Oh yeah. Know? And that's totally fine. Like, and prob- <laughs> probably, probably ever. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. you know, when you put it in that terms, it sound, those terms, it sounds like we're really not that far apart in terms no. of the way that we think about things. No, yeah, I mean, for yeah, for me, I mean, a lot of times it, uh, that sort of call, again, what you said as far as the call to repentance, the sort of, um, the the desire, like, I have a deep, I have a deep desire to see, like, I would love to see conservatism change. I would love to mm-hmm. see it be a, you know, a not not just a reactionary force, um, and like sure, like fiscal conservatism, fight for it, or like a level of social conservative conservatism. Um, I don't see much like personal need for it, um, but um, but sure, like be that be that voice, but don't be like a racist white supremacist. <laughs> um, Thing. Yeah, well, um, I mean, so, I don't, I don't know so much about social conservatism because the only things I can really associate that with is taking people's rights away. Right. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I, that's why I was so ambivalent about it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know how how that would be framed other than restriction. Um, but there could certainly be a healthier conservatism, and sure. there are some conservatives trying to argue that uh, what Trump represents and what the Christian right represents isn't really conservatism at all. I mean, it certainly is in the sense of reaction. Yeah. It's, 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 it's reaction. I mean, it falls on the right side of yeah. the spectrum, but that is perhaps somewhat limited framework for discussing these things. Right. Yeah. Well, I know, I know, I know us basically. And like we, we basically <laughs> talk 
uh, or interact in some way every single, you know, multiple times a week. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's, it's great. No, it's great. Um, but I know I, uh, it's, we're actually recording this on a holiday weekend and, uh, and I, I want to certainly be uh, respectful of your time and everything. Um, and I, I know this has been a wide ranging conversation, but I wouldn't have had it any other way, really. Like we, <laughs> we touched on a lot of different stuff. Um, it would, yeah, I, I always, I always appreciate talking to you. And, and, uh, so thank you again for coming on the show. Where can people find, find your work online and, um, where can they support your work? Uh, yeah, thank you, Blake. I, I, I really appreciate talking to you as well. It's great to have, um, this, this conversation and I, I do appreciate the way it ranges widely as well, given our, uh, common intellectual interests and common references. We have a lot. So we have a yeah. lot to talk, yeah, yeah, talk we do. about. It's always nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, people can find me on Twitter. My handle is at C underscore Stroop. That's S-T-R-O-O-P. It means syrup in Dutch. Stroop waffles. They're good. <laughs> oh, uh, really? My last name means uh, chestnut in French. That's, <laughs> so, that's, that's nice. It's a, it's a, yeah. Anyways, I don't know why I mentioned that. Go, go on. <laughs> um, yeah, I, wrote, I guess I kind of started it. Ed, so. ed, now, etymology Corner. I'm stealing that from, from Lauren. <laughs> Lauren O'Neill, our friend Lauren O'Neill of the Sunday School Dropout. That's yeah. right. Listen to that um, show. <laughs> I, I like to go on various people's podcasts. So mm-hmm. um, if you want to find me, uh, if you like listening to me talk with people, um, you can also find me on a couple episodes of Sunday School Dropouts and on the Ask Steve Austin podcast. Um, and um gosh you, you've I'm been on, uh, on several episodes for rick smith's show correct that's oh yes mm-hmm. uh, i wasn't even thinking about that as a podcast but it, i mean it is available in podcast form so i've been on the rick smith show i've been on state of belief radio with reverend dr welton gaddy uh and i do i have contributed a lot to religion dispatches mm-hmm. uh, and i blog at my own uh, website not your mission field which is located at chrisgroup.com or if you go to notyourmissionfield.com, it will redirect you to the same place. Great. Great. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks again for, for talking. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, thank you, Blake. It's been great.